Turn with me, please, to Genesis 35. Genesis 35. We're going to read the first five verses, and then we will read also a few verses from Joshua 24. Hear the word of God. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and was with me in the way which I went. And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. And then Joshua 24, 13 through 18, this is Joshua's farewell address. He was 100 years old here. And uh, we're going to jump in at a part that is just a list of long things that God speaks about that he gave Israel uh, undeservedly. Verse 13, I have given you a land for which you did not labor, cities which you built not, and you dwell in them. Of the vineyards and olive yards which you planted not, do you eat. Now therefore, because of this long list of things, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore will we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we ask that as a result of this address, this message, this sermon, that thou wilt so work in each heart here, particularly in the men, the fathers, in the midst of us, the conviction that they need to restore daily intentional family worship in their own families, and that this lost art in our secular, worldly, carnal day may again take a central place in the church of Jesus Christ and become the staple element, the foundational element 
in the midst of each God-fearing family. Lord, I beseech of thee, use this address not only to, to compel men in their conscience to do this, but also to help them in showing them guidelines and assistant means to implement intentional, daily, sustained, applied family worship in their own families. Oh God, restore the family altar. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last night I was reading uh, Obadiah Sedgwick, a family altar erected to the honor of the eternal God, 125 pages on Genesis 35, 1 through 5. Where is the family altar today? This is astonishing that we live in a day in which fathers, even in churches that believe in the inspiration of Scripture, do not have a time of sustained family worship daily in their families. You realize if you lived in the 17th century and you didn't do daily, intentional, sustained, godly family worship in your family, that when the pastor and elder would come to see you each year on family visitation, and they would ask you how your family worship is going, if you said, we don't do it, or we skip it some days, they would say to you, well, we'll give you a solemn warning, but if we come back next year and you're still not doing it, Uh, we're going to have to put you under quiet censor and forbid you from coming to the Lord's Supper because you are failing in the very foundational duty of rearing your household in the fear and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is the lost art, the lost spiritual discipline of our day. When When my oldest child was three years old, I was asked to do family a talk on family worship in South Africa. And I ended up studying over 100 hours for that talk because I began to find more and more things that convicted me. And I went to my wife and I said, we're going to have to change how we do family worship. We're going to have to do it biblically. We're going to have to do it like the Reformers and the Puritans did it. We're going to have to restore the family altar. Well, It was the most unforgettable conference I've ever done in my entire life. And I came back from that conference and I said, I've got to preach about this all around the world. And I have. And I believe, I believe that until we get back to the prayer meetings that we talked about earlier in this conference, until we get back to restoring the family altar in the homes of Christians, because revival, remember, starts with the people of God, I believe we're not going to see revival. Until we restore the family altar. Until fathers feel the burden of teaching their children every day. And stop saying it's the church or the Sunday school or the Christian school that has to train my children. They are all assistants to you. But you are to sustain the daily family altar in forms of family worship in your family. I grew up in a family that did have family worship, thanks be to God. But my parents were married 50 years. 
We, uh, we five children got together and we said, we're all going to thank my dad for one thing, my mom for one thing, and we won't talk about ahead of time what we're going to say. All five of us thank my mother, by the way, for her private prayer life. She was an amazing prayer warrior. All five of us thank my dad for family worship. And particularly for the Sunday evening family worship, which was an extended one in which he would read Pilgrim's Progress to us in the midst of it uh, for 20, 30 minutes, in addition to the regular family worship, every Sunday evening. And we'd pepper him with questions about how the Holy Spirit works. He'd set down the book and he'd teach us often with tears flowing down his face. And my older brother said to him, Dad, I want to thank you for this, that I never had to doubt the existence of God. Because when I was three years old, my oldest memory in life is sitting on your lap in family worship and looking up in your face. Can't remember what you were saying, but I remember the tears streaming down your face and thinking, God is real. Impressions through family worship. Even when a little child doesn't understand everything, are inestimably important. It's training your children in the fear of God. Now, Matthew Henry said this, as goes family worship, so generally goes the home. And as goes the home, so goes the church. And as goes the church, so goes the nation. And as goes the nation, so goes the world. Family worship is probably the most important thing that we do in this life beside public worship. It is absolutely critical. It's not the only factor of child rearing, of course. Family worship is not a substitute for other parental duties. If you engage in serious family worship with your kids... And then you walk an ungodly life, you're you're defeating your purpose, of course. But family worship is the foundation of a Christian home. And when we relinquish that, we're relinquishing the major tool we have to train our children day by day in the truths of God. If your children leave home, say, say 20 years old, You've got 7,300 days to teach them everything they need to know about life, spiritual life, natural life, to teach them the whole counsel of God as recorded in the Holy Scriptures. And if it takes you two, three, four years to read the entire Bible to your family and family worship, let's say it takes three years, you've only got six opportunities to talk to them about each chapter of the Bible as a father. That's gone before you know it. You don't want to waste one day, one day of family worship with your family. This is critical. This is your opportunity to obey the command of God, to teach your children diligently. When you sit by the way, when you walk, when you lie down, this is a Hebrew expression, Deuteronomy 6, of daily activities. Moses is saying you teach your children every day. Now, family worship is the most neglected means of grace, the most neglected spiritual discipline in 
all of Christianity today. We substitute. Can you imagine that? We substitute modern entertainment media. We spend more time in front of that with kids than we do with an open Bible and speaking to them from soul to soul. What a disaster. What a recipe for nominal Christendom. We've got to turn this ship around, friends. And you fathers are primarily responsible. And I'm hoping after the end of this talk, you will go home to your families and you will say, Dear family, I have shortchanged you in family worship. I repent in your, in your sight. I ask you to cooperate with me as we begin in a simple, feeble way, according to my abilities, to lead you in family worship day by day. And I'm not talking about a 20-second prayer before the meal. I'm talking about family altar being restored. So what I want to do in this talk is I want to look at four things with you. First, the duty of family worship. Second, the implementation of it. How do you do it? We're going to get very practical here, each part of it. Third, quickly go through some of the frivolous objections to family worship. And fourth, give you some motivations for family worship. So duty, implementation, objections, and motivation. So Obadiah Sedgwick uh, puts it so well. He said, the Lord is giving in Genesis 35 a commission to Jacob. And he gives the commission to Jacob privately. It's as if he's alone with Jacob. And he says, Jacob, you need to speak to the consciences of your children You need to set up an altar in your family. It's interesting that God doesn't say that to Jacob in the midst of his family. He says it privately. He deals with his conscience. You've got to restore, you've got to restore Jacob, the family altar. And Jacob is convinced, as I hope you'll be convinced. In fact, I hope if you're a father not doing sustained daily family worship, I hope you'll feel in my talk as if you're standing alone. You'll see no man save Jesus only. Standing alone with God in this talk and speaking to your conscience so that you, like Jacob, will respond and say, Arise, God said, go to Bethel and dwell there and build an altar to the Lord. And Jacob does that. And he begins this daily family worship. He charges his family as prophet that he's going to instruct them in the mind of God He fulfills his role as a king by commanding them to put away their strange gods. And then, especially, he fulfills the role of a priest to his family by building an altar, by pouring out a drink offering, flying to the Messiah to come with his family, together with oil, in verse 14. And Sedgwick says of this, it's a literal altar, which signifies sacrifice and offerings that points to Christ. It's a mystical altar, Because Christ himself is the altar. As we know in the New Testament, Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle, which is Jesus, who's our justification, our sanctification, our sustenance, our safe protection, our consolation, our eternal salvation, our all and in all. And it's a figurative altar, which is represented by worshiping God. Worshiping God not only in public, but in Jacob's case here, also in his family. And so the gist 
of Genesis 35, 1 through 5, is to teach us that family heads must be prophets, priests, and kings who erect family altars for God's worship in their own household. And then Sedgwick says this, God commands it. These are all points he develops in about a page each. I don't have time to read it to you, of course. God commands it, number one. The prophecies and promises of the word imply it. God's people have practiced it throughout the ages, except in our age. The providence of God calls for it. Families are to be little churches. Family heads must give an account of their family worship to God on Judgment Day. Daily needs require family worship. Daily sins require family worship. And the blessing of God follows upon family worship. Well, I just gave you ten typical reasons the Puritans gave their people for doing family worship. But there's more. In Joshua, we read how Joshua says, As for me and my house, we will serve, often tra- the word in Hebrew is often translated worship, we will worship the Lord. Joshua doesn't make it optional. He doesn't say to his teenage sons, you know, if you care to worship, you know, we'll worship. No, no, no. We will worship the Lord. It's an inclusive word. It's a word that allows no exceptions. Serving God in your family, worshiping God in your family, is not optional. In fact, Joshua makes this amazing statement when he's parting ways with his family, as well as the whole nation. He's going to die. But he says, I know my family. I've established daily family worship with them. And so as I leave the scene, I know they will continue it. You know, by the grace of God, I had that talk I had to give in South Africa when my oldest was three. So it's by the sheer grace of God that that happened, and we were able to, through the years, do daily family worship in our family, albeit with many shortcomings. But when my son was about to get married, I, I met with him in a restaurant for the last time before his marriage, and I had a list of things I wanted to get. I said, this is my last time I can give you advice unsolicited, and uh, here it is. I had like 10 points. One of them near the bottom of the list was make sure he'll continue family worship. You know, as I was going through that list, I got to that point and I thought, I don't even have to ask that. Why would I ask him that? Of course he's going to continue family worship. If if I never did family worship, if I try to skip it one night, my kids would have looked at me and said, Dad, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? What's happening to you? Of course, you know, it's, it's what the Puritans called holy habits. You don't think about whether you have to brush your teeth every day. You just do it because it's a habit. You don't think if you have to have breakfast this morning, you do it because it's a habit. Well, family worship is a habit. You don't ask, shall we do it or not? The question is, Lord, help me to do it effectively. Help me to do it in a way that thy benediction comes down upon this family. And so I, I, skipped, I skipped that point at that at that restaurant because I said I don't have to ask him of course he's going to do it now Joshua's case it's so interesting because in those days you see I mean a president today has has a large influence as we're living in this right now in a painful way but in Joshua's day 
a leader of a nation had even more powerful impact, especially his godliness, could influence the whole nation. And you read in Joshua 24, later, verse 31, that Joshua served, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders of the next generation that outlived Joshua, which had known the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. So here's the picture you get. Joshua in his own family is serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord every day, and that then spills over into his leadership into all of Israel, and the fear of God is sustained in the nation of Israel for an entire generation after Joshua. And the foundation of it is his daily conviction to serve the Lord each day with his family. Well, from Genesis 35, Joshua 24, and there's many other scriptures we could go to, we need then to ask, what exactly are we to do in family worship? What is our duty to do according to the Bible? And I would posit with you that the Bible says we're to do four things. Number one, we are to have a daily reading of the Word of God in our family worship. That's obvious. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, Deuteronomy 6, a number of places. I'm, I hope I don't have to prove that to you. I hope every father here is at least doing that, reading the Bible every day in front of your family. You can't survive without daily physical food, and you and your children, of course, you know that, can't survive spiritually without the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But number two, and this is where the rubber hits the road, daily instruction in the Word of God. Daily instruction in the Word of God. This is where my tradition, the Dutch tradition, didn't do very well. In the Dutch tradition, by the way, you pray before a meal, you read the Bible after each meal, three times a day, and you pray at the end of the meal. So, at least we did that much. But the daily instruction is what has disappeared in so many Christian homes. In fact, my experience around the world is that there's probably no more than 5% of Christian families that, that do this. Where the father takes the Bible in hand and walks his children through the major takeaway points in family worship of that particular chapter. So that by the time the family's gone from Genesis to Revelation, the family's talked together about nearly every subject under the sun, and the father, with the support of his wife, has instructed his children in nearly every doctrinal truth and practical truth in the Bible. This is what Deuteronomy 6 is saying. And this, this, the, the Reformers, the Puritans, they carried this on through Q&A mostly. They would ask their children questions, lead them to the answers, then comment on it, then the family would discuss it, then the father would wrap it up, and they move on to something else. Sometimes it would last five minutes, sometimes it would last ten. The point isn't to do long family worships every day. The point is every day, just like every day you eat, so every day you give your children spiritual food. 
And notice, Moses says, we must teach our children diligently on a daily basis. Also read Deuteronomy 11, 18 and 19. Now number three is daily prayer to the throne of God. So daily reading of the word of God, daily instruction in the word of God, daily prayer to the throne of God. 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Not just the word of God. Jeremiah 10 says, God will pour out his fury. Imagine. Can you get a stronger word than that? The fury of God on the family that does not pray together. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said in commenting on that text, a family that does not pray habitually together is like a home without a roof, open and exposed to all the storms of heaven. What a dreadful thing to do, to claim to be a Christian and not have any earnest prayer with your family day by day to the God you profess is your life and your all in and all. And then number four, daily singing of the praise of God. Psalm 118, verse 15. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. You see, this is not, this is not synagogue singing, singing or temple singing. This is tent singing. This is singing in the homes Philip Henry, the father of the famous commentarian Matthew Henry, said this text is our basis, our biblical basis for the daily singing of psalms in our family. Joyful singing coming from the tents, the individual tents of the righteous. So God requires us from his word to do four things with our family and family worship each day. We're to read the word of God We're to instruct in the word of God. We're to pray to the throne of God. And we're to sing the praise of God. Now even as you hear these things, in a way they're common sense, aren't they? But it's nice to know they're recorded in the Bible for us too. And our conscience assents to it, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus is worthy of this. God's word commands it. And my conscience affirms it's my duty. You see... You, dad, you are the leader of your home and you owe allegiance to God. You set the pattern with your wife to show your children the importance of pledging allegiance to the triune God. Yes, you are a friend to your children. Yes, you are an advisor to your children. But you're more than that. You're the teacher. You're the ruler in the home. Your example and leadership are crucial. I'm not talking here about excessive patriarchalism. I'm talking here about the biblical paradigm of being a teaching prophet, being an intercessory priest, and being a ruling, guiding king in your own home. You owe your children prophetical teaching, priestly intercession, and royal guidance, and you can't do that without family worship. And so God needs to be able to say of you what he could say of Abraham. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. 
Well, I'm hoping you're saying right now, okay, I'm convinced, I need to do it, but now how do I do it? That's point two, implementing family worship. Just a few quick words about preparing for it, and then I want to quickly visit all four parts and give you some practical guidelines. Preparing for it. Have a place in your house where each child has, especially each child that can read, has a pile of books. Every child has their own Bible. Get a Bible with really good study notes and have a, have a psalm book there. Or if you sing hymns in the family, a hymn book as well. Don't forget the psalms, though. And then have, maybe you're going to do a daily reading from a daily devotional. That book would be there. Or maybe you're going through another book, like Pilgrim's Progress to Your Family. That book would be there. But yeah, each child has his own place. So it's not, it's not uncoordinated. Oh, where'd that, where'd that book go? It's just habitual. We did it always after we kicked back from having supper. We went straight to family worship in a separate room. The piles of books are there. So be ready for it. And your, your wife can implement that for you. During, well, my wife can. During family worship, aim for brevity. Aim for brevity. Uh, usually with very young children, very young children, you've got, you got to move really quickly. If you have young children and older children, you might shut down the family worship with your closing prayer and, and, and your singing and let the younger children then play. And maybe, maybe the older children, hopefully they're, they're godly and they're interested, will stay and talk. And if you want to talk for a while, that's wonderful. That's what family worship is all about. Speaking from heart to heart with, with your children. Once children are older, okay, maybe 15 minutes would be a wonderful time. But... but Interestingly, in all the dozens of books written on family worship by the Puritans, not one of them states a, a time. They, do, they want to get into a legalistic framework. One day it might go really well. One day it might not go, go so well. One day it might be five, six minutes and you're done. Nobody's saying anything. It's like pulling teeth. The next day it might be a, a lot longer and, and you can hardly shut it down because everyone's so interested. God knows. God is mindful of our human frailty. Three, don't indulge excuses to avoid family worship. Don't say, well, I just got angry at one of the kids that don't feel like doing it. Actually, then you need to do it all the more. And you need to ask forgiveness of the child and, and, and of your family. Don't say, ah, I'm so tired. I got home from work. I'm just so tired. What? You can't do a 10-minute family worship? Jesus was carrying the cross. He nearly succumbed. He nearly died on the way to the cross to die for you. Can't you do a 10-minute family worship for him? God will help you. No excuses. Do it. And just ask God to help you. You'll be amazed. Sometimes you'll, you'll wake up when you do it. <laughs> Four, lead family worship with a firm fatherly hand and a soft, penitent heart. Speak with hopeful solemnity. Talk naturally, yet reverently. Use the tone you'd use when speaking to a deeply respected friend about a serious matter. Expect great things from a great covenant-keeping God. Those are the basics for preparation. Now, how do, how do you do it? For the reading of Scripture, number one, have a plan. When the children are very young, we found it's best to really focus on stories. In the Bible, histories. Genesis is a great book. Uh, the Gospels are great. Uh, 
don't, don't try to lead them through Ezekiel when they're three years old. It just, it's hard. But as they get older, eight, nine, ten, start leading them through the whole Bible. J.C. Ryle said a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. Fill their minds with Scripture. Give them, he says, the whole Bible, even when they are quite young. Then account for special occasions. Maybe you're having the Lord's Supper. It's a Sunday morning. You're doing family worship. You're having the Lord's Supper that day. Well, we'll read Isaiah 53 or, or read Matthew 26. Or maybe you're going on vacation later in the day. Family vacation. Maybe it's summertime. And my dad would always take us, he'd always take us into the living room. We'd all get down on our knees when the car was entirely packed and we're ready to jump in. Last thing we do is have a family worship before we go. We get down on our knees and he'd pray earnestly. And then he, we'd sit in our chairs. He would always read Psalm 91 or Psalm 121. It was a tradition, but it was a good one. It taught us all you all need God's protection every step of the way. And then involve the whole family. Uh, if we're going to read 20 verses that night, we, we had three children. I would say, okay, all of us read four verses each. And when the children are involved in the reading, they remember more, but they also know they're going to get asked questions, so they're tuned in. They're tuned in. If you just take the reading and you don't follow up with instruction, human nature will tune out. So have children also memorize Scripture. I wish we had done more of that, actually, because when, when Scripture gets into your heart, you never know how God's going to use that. I have a niece who just went really wild in her teen years and she's just abandoned everything and abandoned God and then God stopped her wonderfully in her mid-20s and converted her and she said, it was incredible. She said, all the instruction I received when I was young, it all came back flooding into me. I remembered things my dad used to say to me that I thought I had long forgotten. See, it was stored in the heart. Number two, biblical instruction. How do you do that? Well, this is a, the toughest thing for, for most dads. And uh, actually, I, I was here in Greenville. I was visiting with Dr. Michael Barrett. And uh, we were talking about the need for reform notes in a King James Version study Bible. You know, it was amazing. It was amazing to both him and to me. Without ever talking, we both had the same burden without ever talking about it, until here in Greenville, that we both were burdened to, 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 to work on a Bible, a KJV Bible, that had study notes that were actually reformed. You know, there's, wasn't a, there's not a single KJV study Bible up until five years ago that, that had reformed notes. So I went back to Dr. Bilkus, he appeared to reform. He agreed to be editor of the Old New Testament, and Dr. Barrett of the Old Testament and I would be the overall general editor. And then we'd get different men to write different portions. A few men here wrote, wrote different portions on the different Bible, Bible books. And I thank you for that. But I also said, we've got to have a family worship section at the end of each chapter. To take the hard work of this away from dads. Most dads don't have a half an hour every morning to really prepare for family worship. So we wrote a section, which you'll find... On, up, back on the table out there in, in the KJV Study Family Worship Bible. 
we wrote a section at the end of each chapter, two or three major takeaways. And even now when our kids are gone out of the home, my wife and I read it every, every single time we read a Bible chapter, every day. We read this together and we talk about it. If, even if it's just the two of you. Where two or three are gathered to my name, I'll be in the midst of them. And so what you do is most of these end with a question and you just throw out that question. So we've taken that extra work away from you. You can add your own thoughts, of course. That's great. But you're never unprepared. Even when you read Ezekiel 44, you'll know what to say because it's down here for you, you see. And then there'll be questions and you talk about it together as a family. So it also comes out in the Family Worship Bible Guide, which is out of print right now, but they're on the, the reprint is on the way over the ocean. Um, if you use another Bible version, you can, you can get that. Or you can go ahead and, and spend just a tad bit more. The Bible is very reasonable. It's only $30, actually, uh, here at the conference, at least. Um, and you can get all the extras in this Bible as well, not only the sound notes, but wonderful other sections as well that can help you in, in your family teaching and family worship. Now, what you do then is you, you read these family worship sections. There's, there's, there's nothing else like it written. And you ask the questions, and you have this discussion. As you discuss, it's great if your children are different ages, if you can just in a simple way ask each child one question. It doesn't always work out quite that neatly, but ask each child one question according to their age level, and don't let the others answer. Don't let the 17-year-old answer a question to an 8-year-old. But also don't do it the other way around. 17-year-old will feel very, very humiliated if the 8-year-old jumps in and answers the question that he can't answer. So gear it for each age as, as best you can. Also, be pure in doctrine. It doesn't make any sense to not be true to the doctrines of Scripture when you teach your children. So insist on biblical truth do it in the form of Titus 2, verse 7, In all things show thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness and sincerity. Don't abandon doctrinal precision when teaching young children. Aim for simplicity and soundness. And be relevant in application. Tell them, if you're reading Psalm 31, for example, I always tell my children, Every time we come around to it, every two, three years, I would tell them the story about a lady in our church who got wonderfully converted through verse 15. My times are in thy hands. Or something happened in my own life that was very precious to me. Romans 8, 28. It's very precious to me. I'll tell them that. I want them to know. I want them to know that God is still working, still speaking powerfully today through his word. But I also tell them stories from church history. And I'll tell them stories from the Bible that relate to that. Maybe not as much as I should have, but make an effort to do that. You'd be relevant application. And then apply it to their daily lives as well. And then be affectionate in manner. Don't let family worship be a burden for your kids. Be affectionate in manner. Now, an unbelieving child may may not enjoy family worship, but don't exacerbate that and make it worse by going too long or, 
or having a stern face or having no joy in family worship. No, be affectionate. When your children are young, put one on both knees and let them look at you as you're talking to them about their soul. You know, the model here is, is the man, is the man, the godly man in Proverbs, the wise man, who says, my son, come, come to me. I will, I will teach you understanding. And in understanding, I will give you wisdom. You know, the whole book of Proverbs is so warm, isn't it? It's a father warmly relating to his son. And that's how you are to do it. That's why my dad's tears when he would teach us were so moving to us. All of us children, all five of us, were overwhelmingly convicted and impressed by my dad's teaching. My dad had only an eighth grade education. But he spoke from his heart. And he spoke truth into our lives. And then when he would get down to pray, and he'd cry out in his prayer, Lord, we can't miss any of these children in heaven one day. Let us be an undivided family reserved for the heavenly mansions above. You could give me any amount of money in the world, and I wouldn't trade it for those memories. The impressions that you leave on your children when you have a heart for their soul is unforgettable. Now, my dad wasn't perfect. Sometimes I wondered if he cared about things for my body at all. He didn't seem to ask me many questions about my daily life. But I sure knew he loved my soul. My mother took care of caring for her <laughs> physicalness. So it was good balance. But you see, whatever you do, don't give your children the impression that you care more about who won a stupid ball game last week than you care about Jesus Christ and their relationship with him. You've got to be speaking to them about that relationship. They've got to feel from you that their souls weigh upon your soul and that you yearn for them to repent of their sins and believe in Christ alone for salvation. And that will come out in your daily family worship when you instruct them. And then require attention. This is the most important part of your day, family worship. So if the phone rings, you don't answer it. Of course not. They'll call back. You've got an answering machine. You have an audience with God. This, this is what the Puritans called your little, your little service in your own home. Your, your, your home should be as much as possible like, like a little church service in family worship. So you, you, your audience with God is far more important than you're attending to the voice of a human being. And number three, hints for, for praying. Don't pray too long. And don't teach your children in your prayer. Teach them with your eyes open. Pray to God with your eyes shut. And don't admonish your children in your prayer. You've got to admonish children eyeball to eyeball. Don't sneak it into a prayer. They will resent that. Mary Winslow used to say to her son, Octavius, when he was in his early days of preaching, she said, you do too much teaching in your prayer. You need to pray in your prayer. You're praying to God. You're not teaching men in prayer. Be simple without being shallow. Pray for things that your children know something about. Is someone sick? You pray for that. Someone, one of the children have a big test tomorrow? You pray for that. Be direct. But also be varied. We found... In my opinion, one of the best 
acronyms to use is the ACTS formula. I'm sure you've heard about it. You start out with adoration. You tell God how wonderful he is, how holy he is. You praise him. Then you move into the confession, confessing sins, family sins, thanksgiving, so many things to thank the Lord for, and then supplications. And you teach your children to pray that way too, by your own example, but also by actually sitting down and teaching them what prayer is and how, how we come to God. So what we did, and you can find your own way here, but when children were three years old, we, I always prayed first at the beginning of the family worship, and then my, I had my wife and my children take turns doing the closing prayer. And when they were three years old, they're still in my lap, I'd say, you, you, you do the family prayer at the end, I'll whisper a few words in your ear, you say them. I'll whisper a few more words, you say them. When they're four years old, I'd say, you start now. You start the prayer. And then when you run stuck, just poke me. And they did. And I would then start adding a few words until they're about seven. When they're seven, I'd say, you take the whole prayer now. You see, so the Holy Spirit alone can teach them to truly pray. But by helping them learn about how to pray, you see, their friends come over. They're not ashamed to pray in front of their friends. And then when the Holy Spirit does work, well, it's, it's much easier for them to express themselves to God because they're used to doing that. And then for singing. Sing doctrinally pure songs. Sing psalms first and foremost, I would humbly suggest to you. Because they're so God-centered. And they're so Christ-centered. John Calvin said, the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul and give glory to God. So it's a treasure. And then sing heartily and with feeling. Colossians 3, 23. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not as unto men. And then after family worship, after family worship, get beside your Get beside your wife at night. Get down on your knees at night when you go to bed and you pray together. I hope you do do that. We take turns each night. That's just wonderful. I love to hear my wife pray. And there's a feminine side to prayer too, you know, sometimes that we men don't, don't quite get. And we need to hear it. And it bonds you closer as husband and wife. But when you're on your knees together, just, just pray at night. Lord, bless, bless our feeble efforts today at family worship that they may issue forth in the eternal salvation and maturation of our dear children. God has to bless it. All right. Third thought, very briefly now, what are, what are some objections? Our, time, our family doesn't have time for this. Well, Samuel Davies, the counterpart in the south to the revivalist Jonathan Edwards in the north, said, pray what has God given you time for? Have you no time for what is the greatest business of your life? You see, if something's extremely important to you, you'll find the time. This is extremely important. Daily family worship. Objection two, there's no time when we can all be together. That is the only objection I know of that is a challenging one. I didn't think so when our kids were 14 and under. <laughs> but when they were off to college, it's tough. So you do the best you can. They know when family worship is, and you ask them sincerely, try to be there. But it doesn't always work out. And here's where I made a big mistake. 
When they came home later at night, I wish I had pulled them aside and said, let me just have a family worship alone with you. I didn't do that. I regret that. Because they need that time alone with God every day as well. But do the best you can. Our family's too small. No, it isn't. Or two or three are gathered in my name. I'll be in the midst. Our family's too diverse for everyone to profit. No, no, no. Children can sing. They don't have to understand every word. Children can get impressions from prayer. They don't have to understand every word. And when you explain the Bible and you're trying to reach down to their level, they'll understand. They'll pick up more than you think. And beside, when you're talking to the very young children and you've got a 17-year-old there, he's not going to tune out because you're going to say to him, aren't you, you, you listen to how I talk to your four-year-old brother now because, you know, five years from now you might be married and you might be having children and, you know, you need to learn how to, how to talk to young children about the Lord. So everyone can profit. Then there's the big objection. I'm not good at leading family worship. Well, here's what George Whitfield said. Where the heart is rightly disposed to God, it does not demand any uncommon abilities to discharge family worship in a decent and edifying manner. God doesn't ask you to have great gifts in leading family worship. He asks you to have a mind to use whatever gifts he's given you. Yes, but he also asks you to have a heart to sincerely approach your children. And that sincerity will do more, perhaps, than anything else when you bring truth sincerely to them. Some of our family members won't participate. Well, you just simply say to them, in this house, we will serve the Lord. You must, you must join us, my son. And if they still refuse, which I, I doubt, but if they still refuse, you simply say, well, we're convicted that spiritual food and physical food are both necessary. You need them both. So if you reject the one, then we'll withhold the other. <laughs> and they'll participate. <laughs> motivations, final point, motivations for family worship. Number one, the eternal welfare of your loved ones. The eternal welfare of your loved ones. Family worship has been one of the most effective tools God has used throughout the ages to save children. I was once in Italy, did a conference for about 200 ministers, and uh, I think it was Mother's Day or something right around then, and I happened to ask them as I stepped to the podium, how many of you have been blessed in your life through your mother's influence in your conversion. And it looked to me like every single hand went up. Now, maybe there were a few that didn't. But that is true of fathers as well. Fathers and mothers, you have the most profound impact of any human beings alive on your children. Why wouldn't you do daily family worship? Charles Spurgeon said, my mother used to pray over me with me on my lap and her tears as she prayed for my conversion, would fall down in, in between the collar and the neck. And he said, I used to think with terror, like, oh, these tears will testify against me in the day of judgment if I don't seek the Lord. Well, that was a good terror, I think. The satisfaction of a good conscience, number two. 
I mentioned Matthew Henry. You know, when he was on his deathbed, he got all his children around him. And he said to them, this is what he said. I'm paraphrasing here. Children, you know I haven't been a good father in many ways, and I ask your forgiveness. And they all forgave him. He said, but children, you know one thing. In family worship, every day I have lifted up the name of Jesus Christ before you. So don't any of you, don't any of you, dare to meet me on the wrong side of Christ on the day of judgment. Where did he get that boldness? Because his conscience was clear that despite his faults and flaws, he loved their souls and he brought Christ to them sincerely. The freedom of conscience gives a holy boldness to speak to your children about their need to be ready to meet the Lord. Motivation number three, assistance in child rearing. When you erect a family altar, you see, you have open conversations about everything under the sun because the Bible talks about everything under the sun. And so children don't just turn that off when they become 13 and 14 and stop talking to you. If there's that open conversation, normally, I'm not saying it can be exceptions, but normally children will keep being open. So this is a, a huge assistance for the teen years that your children and you can talk together about all kinds of personal things. That's a great thing. I'll be honest, if it weren't for family worship, I think there's hundreds of things I wouldn't have talked about with my children. I live a busy life. I was actually assaulted in a Middle East uh, nation uh, coming back from lecturing. And uh, my assaulters were, they had me on the floor, all gagged and tied up and, and they were shouting they were the mafia. And I, I, I was absolutely convinced I was going to die any second. And so I didn't even ask to live because I just thought, I'm done. So I commended my wife. I commended my kids and work and everything to the Lord. But as I was laying there, the thought came to me, what would I say to my children if I had one more chance to speak to them? At that time, I think one was a teenager and the other two were a bit younger. And... Uh, Suddenly I realized I couldn't think of anything thanks to family worship because we talked about everything in the Bible and that's all that's important, all the biblical things. Four, the shortness of time. You blink a couple times, your kids are teenagers, you blink a couple more and they're out of the home. Now is the time, Dad, to bring them the word of God. Don't miss another day. And number five, Love for God in his church. Love for God in his church. What do I mean by that? I've had the privilege of serving three churches in my life, and in God's mysterious providence, they've all been 700 to 800 people, somewhere in that range. And when I look out over each congregation that I've served, I look at the backbone families in the church, where they stay with the church from generation to generation, the men often become deacons and elders and, and sometimes ministers. And they're solid, godly families you can rely on. And they're the joy of a minister's heart almost in every situation. There's exceptions. The fathers are doing daily family worship. There's a pathos, an ethos in those families of fearing God. And it's grounded in daily family worship. 
So what happens? What happens if you're, some of you are older now and you're grandparents? And you're going to say to me after this talk, I wish I heard this talk 20 years ago. What do I do? You begin to do with your grandchildren. Talk to your grandchildren. Go over to their house. Get them on your lap. Talk to them about the Lord. And uh, you can't maybe do a, a full f- formal family worship. But you can, uh, you can talk to your children. about. You, maybe you can give them, give them this address or give them a book. Uh, actually, I've written this out in a, in a longer form in, in a little book, Family Worship. Give them the Family Worship Bible Guide as a present and say, you know, I, I didn't do this. I'm sorry, but this is a gift for you. Would you consider beginning family worship with your own children? God can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Don't be discouraged. Confess your sin to God, to your children. Speak to the, your grandchildren. Fly with your, your spouse to the throne of grace. Don't become discouraged. Do what you can to promote family worship in your own family. Now, I want to close this talk just with a quotation from a book from John Payton. John Payton had a very God-fearing father. He was a missionary to the cannibals. And uh, you you know the story. Uh, The cannibals uh, burned down his home. His wife died His child died, and he ended up fearing that they would come after him and uh, kill him and eat him. And so he climbed up into a tree on that very sad night, and uh, despairing of life itself, and as he was in that tree, he said it was as if the Lord wrote in large golden capital letters across the sky, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. How in the world did this man have such faith to go on in such circumstances? Well, let's go back in his life to the day that he left home for university. 60 years after he left home, he wrote these words. And if you forget everything I said, I'll talk long. But you get the pathos of this. I'll be happy. Because you'll get what I'm trying to get across. That's why I close with this. My dear father walked with me for the first six miles of the way when I, went, when I left home for university. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation are as fresh to me as if it were Yesterday. Tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile, we walked almost in silence. My father, as was his custom, carrying hat in hand, which meant, of course, he was praying because his hat was not on his head. His lips kept moving in prayer for me. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. Then... He grasped my hand firmly for a full minute in silence. And solemnly and affectionately, he said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God bless you and keep you from evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and I saw my father still standing with head uncovered. 
gazing after me. Waving my hat goodbye. I was around the corner in an instant. But my heart was too full, too sore to carry me further. I darted into the side of the road. I wept for a good while. And then rising cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood there. And at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him on the other side of the dike, climbing up, looking for me. He did not see me, however. And after he gazed in my direction for a while, he got down. He set his face toward home and began to return. But I noticed his head was still uncovered. His heart, I'm sure, was still rising in prayer for me. I watched through blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve and dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, the tears, the prayers, throughout all my life have risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing as if it was an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations at university, his parting form would rise before me like that of a guardian angel. It's no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties I might faithfully follow my father's shining example. And then here it comes. How much my father's prayers at this time impress me, I can never explain, nor can any stranger ever understand. But when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he would pour out his whole soul in tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus. And for our every personal need, we would all feel, all the children, we would all feel as if we were in the presence of the living Savior. And we learn to love and to know him as our divine friend and Lord. And as we would rise from our knees, I used to steal a look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged to carry the gospel one day to the heathen world. in some way. No coincidence that John Payton went to the cannibals. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee for the family altar. Please restore it in every family represented in this audience this morning. Please go with us And help us to worship thee in our own families with prayer, with scripture reading, with instruction, and with singing. And to do it with a heart that loves thee and hates sin. Make us haters of sin, lovers of Christ, and pursuers of holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.